This is the first Sunday of the Advent season. Um, if you don't know what Advent is, maybe you don't. I don't want to assume that everyone does because until recently I didn't really know exactly what Advent was. Um, I didn't spend a ton of time consistently in church as a kid. And so I just have recently been learning about what Advent is and how churches celebrate Advent. Just to give you a little background, Advent comes from, from the Latin word Adventus. And it means arrival. So the Advent season is four Sundays leading up to Christmas when we celebrate the two arrivals of Jesus. His first arrival at his birth here on earth, earth and his second coming, his second arrival that we're still waiting for. And all sorts of Christians recognize Advent. And if you look into it, everyone does it a little bit differently. So the way that we decided we're going to do it this year is um, we'll be focusing on four themes of Advent that are pretty common. A lot of churches do this. Hope, peace, joy, and love. We'll be talking about those four major themes one at a time through December 18th. And we'll look through each of these themes kind of as a filter to look back at the birth of Jesus and to look forward to the second coming of Jesus. And for each one of these Sundays, we're going to have a little video from the folks at the Bible Project. And the main goal of the video is to just show you what the real biblical meaning from Scripture is for each one of these themes. Because in the English language, we can use words like hope, love, joy, all of that in lots of different contexts. So we want to understand what's the biblical context for those things. Um, so I'll go ahead and um, show that video now. It's just a few minutes long on what the biblical meaning of hope is. So let's say you want to describe the feeling of anticipating a future that's better than the present. You might be giddy or excited or maybe unsure, but most of us know that experience. We call it hope. It's a state of anticipation, and it's crucial for healthy human existence. And it's a really important concept in the Bible. In fact, there are many words for hope in the ancient languages of the Bible, and they're all fascinating. In the Old Testament, there are two main Hebrew words translated as hope. The first is yachal, which means simply to wait for. Like in the story of Noah and the ark, as the floodwaters recede, Noah had to yachal for weeks. The other Hebrew word is kava, which also means to wait. It's related to the Hebrew word kav, which means cord. When you pull a kav tight, you produce a state of tension until there's release. That's kava, the feeling of tension and expectation while you wait for something to happen. The prophet Isaiah depicts God as a farmer who plants vines and kavas for good grapes. Or the prophet Micah talks about farmers who both kava and yachal for morning dew to give moisture to the land. So in biblical Hebrew, hope is about waiting or expectation. But waiting for what? In the period of Israel's prophets, as the nation was sinking into self-destruction, Isaiah said, At this moment, the Lord's hiding his face from Israel, so I will kava for him. The only hope Isaiah had in those dark days was the hope for God himself. You find this same notion of hope all over the book of Psalms, where these words appear over 40 times. In almost every case, what people are waiting for is God. 
Like in Psalm 130, the poet cries out from a pit of despair, I kava for the Lord, let Israel yachal for the Lord, because he's loyal and will redeem Israel from its sins. Biblical hope is based on a person, which makes it different from optimism. Optimism is about choosing to see in any situation how circumstances could work out for the best. But biblical hope is not focused on circumstances. In fact, hopeful people in the Bible often recognize there's no evidence things will get better, but you choose hope anyway. Like the prophet Hosea, he lived in a dark time when Israel was being oppressed by foreign empires, and he chose hope when he said God could turn this valley of trouble into a door of hope, like the day when Israel came up from the land of Egypt. God had surprised his people with redemption back in the days of the Exodus, and he could do so again. So it's God's past faithfulness that motivates hope for the future. You look forward by looking backward, trusting in nothing other than God's character. It's like the poet of Psalm 39 who says, And now, O Lord, what else can I kava for? You are my yachal. In the New Testament, the earliest followers of Jesus cultivated the similar habit of hope. They believed that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was God's surprising response to our slavery to evil and death. The empty tomb opened up a new door of hope, and they used the Greek word elpis to describe this anticipation. The Apostle Peter said that Jesus' resurrection opened up a living hope, that people can be reborn, to become new and different kinds of humans. More than once, the Apostle Paul says the good news about Jesus announces the El Peace of glory. In both cases, this El Peace is based on a person, the risen Jesus, who has overcome death. And this hope wasn't just for humans. The Apostles believed that what happened to Jesus in the resurrection was a foretaste of what God had planned for the whole universe. In Paul's words, it's a hope that creation itself will be liberated from slavery to corruption into freedom when God's children are glorified. So Christian hope is bold, waiting for humanity and the whole universe to be rescued from evil and death. And some would say it's crazy, and maybe it is. But biblical hope isn't optimism based on the odds. It's a choice to wait for God to bring about a future that's as surprising as a crucified man rising from the dead. Christian hope looks back to the risen Jesus in order to look forward. And so we wait. That's what the biblical words for hope are all about. That's a really big hope. So biblical hope is so much more than wishful thinking. It's so much more than a lot of the ways that we use the word hope. The hope we have is based on expectation. Because we believe that God is who he says he is. And he will do what he says he will do. So we'll start by looking at hope here in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 2. And then continuing in verses 6 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. It's a description for hope. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Right there embodied in those verses, we see something that happens so many times throughout the Old Testament. 
Throughout the Old Testament, there's this underlying outcry for rescue. Even though Israel experiences God's redemption and his deliverance many, many times throughout their history, there's still something deeper that's woven into the Old Testament scriptures, this outcry for a rescue. And like they talked about in the video, you think of the Exodus generation as a great example of this. So God delivers his people from slavery. He delivers them from the powers of Egypt to bring them into their own land, to bring them into abundance, into a place where they can worship him and dwell in his presence. And he does this in a way that is undeniably powerful. And the people see this with their own eyes. It's incredible. The plagues come and they go to the Red Sea. The waters are parted and they walk through and then Pharaoh's army drowns when the water goes back. And they get to the other side of the water and they sing this beautiful song of praise to the Lord. He's done this amazing act of deliverance for them. It's amazing. Immediately following in the narrative, the people complain. The people grumble against God because they need water. And God provides for them. And again, they complain against God because they need bread. And again, in his mercy, he provides for them. They experience this deliverance from the Lord. And they go on and they get to Mount Sinai. Um, where Moses is going to go up and he's going to meet with the Lord to get the terms of the covenant between God and Israel. And Exodus 19 says it like this. It says that Mount Sinai was completely enveloped in smoke because the Lord came down on it in fire. Its smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain shook violently. And all of the people... And the Exodus generation saw this with their own eyes. Another manifestation of their great, powerful, and faithful God that had delivered them. And now he's going to make a covenant with them. And they see this. And Moses comes down and he tells the people, this is the terms of the covenant between you and your God. And their response is recorded in chapter 24. Then all the people responded with a single voice. We will do everything that the Lord has commanded. Okay, so then the narrative moves on to Moses going back up the mountain. And he's going to get the stone tablets on this trip. And he's also going to get the blueprints for the tabernacle. And while he's up there, all these amazing things are happening. But the next spot in the narrative where we see the people, they're worshiping the golden calf. They've given up on Moses because he's taken too long. They've given up on all the mighty things of God. And they've chosen to worship an idol. Instead of being faithful. So all through these stories, there's this idea that is developing. That the people as a whole are not recognizing their deepest need. They want to be delivered. They want to be redeemed from all these sufferings that they understand. Like slavery and oppression and lack of food and water. And God takes care of them. He meets their needs in the wilderness because he's merciful and because he's faithful. But their deepest, deepest need, their deepest need, the one that they don't see, is they need redemption from sin and death. That sin and death that entered God's good creation back in Genesis through the disobedience of Adam and Eve and the craftiness of the serpent. They need that redemption 
from sin and death. And they are not recognizing that at all. They just want to be freed from all this other stuff. That is the deep underlying outcry of the Old Testament. That is the foundation for all hope. Is hope for deliverance from sin and death. And it's all throughout the scriptures. The author of Psalm 30 puts it this way. Like they talked about a little bit in the video. This is what he says. Out of the depths I call to you, Lord. Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you kept an account of iniquities, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that you may be revered. I wait for the Lord. I wait, and I put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for there is faithful love with the Lord. And with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. So what's the psalmist waiting for? He's waiting for redemption. Like they said, he's waiting for God himself. The psalmist was a part of the faithful remnant in Israel that recognized that Israel was failing and suffering and that God's redemption was their only hope. Their only hope was God himself. So many at the time did not put their hope in God to meet their deepest need. They sought other remedies just to relieve the symptoms of sin and death. That's what they wanted to get away from. It's just like, I want to get away from these symptoms of sin and death that are uncomfortable to me. So they turned to the gods of foreign nations. They tried to satisfy their desires however they saw fit, often breaking commands and further separating themselves from God in in the process of doing that. They rejected the Lord and they sought to be like other nations when they demanded a king. Their hope was often very misplaced. Over the course of their history, these failings happen over and over again. But so do the promises of the one to come, the Messiah, the one who's going to make all things new. And we've talked about this before. There's many godly characters in the Old Testament, many people that at their highest moments, they are building an outline for what the Messiah, the one to come, is going to look like. And they have all these great qualities at those highest moments, but ultimately they end up falling short. They're not the one to come. In those bright moments, they're just like him. And it's kind of like they're building this like help-wanted ad that we've talked about before. Israel needs this Messiah, the one to come. And one of the people that really outlines this is Moses. Moses tells the people, God will raise up from among you a prophet like me. Listen to him. So the prophet to come is going to be a little bit like Moses. You can see here, Moses knew the Lord face to face, is what the scripture says. So the prophet to come, he's going to know the Lord face to face. He'll be proficient in signs and wonders. He'll be mighty in power. And there's other people who add to this listing, like Joshua. He's careful to observe all the law of Moses. And he meditates on the Torah day and night. These are all things that are become qualities of the one to come. And over the course of all of these people living and exemplifying this, this hopeful expectation builds. The Hebrew scriptures look forward to the Messiah. 
And the faithful meditate on those scriptures and they hold on to that hopeful expectation for the one to come, the one to bring redemption. They wait faithfully. And one of the people who is an awesome example of the Hebrew people waiting faithfully for the Messiah is Simeon. And Simeon's story is here in Luke chapter 2. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. When the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to perform for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him up in his arms, praised God, and said, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace, as you promised. For my eyes have seen your salvation. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and glory to your people, Israel. Simeon was so devout. When I read this story, like it's just short, and I wish we knew more about Simeon. I wish there was more to it. But every time I read it, I'm just like, this is the pinnacle of this guy's life. This is what he looked forward to forever. It was so precious to him. He was so full of hopeful expectation that he would see the one to come with his own eyes before he died. And then he would be satisfied. And what was Simeon hoping for? It tells us right here in these verses, he was hoping for the consolation of Israel. Consolation means comfort. He was waiting for the rescue from suffering that only God himself could provide. And he had placed his hope in God's faithfulness. He was waiting for a deliverance that was on an even grander, more drastic scale than what the Exodus generation had seen when they were freed from slavery in Egypt. And not only that, but Simeon recognized that the Messiah wasn't just coming for his people Israel, but that he was also this light for the Gentiles. Simeon understood from his scriptures and from Revelation that this was the Messiah for everyone, that he was going to restore, come and restore all things. Simeon's hope was fulfilled when he saw the face of Jesus, and he was ready to die in peace. That's how fulfilled he was. I think about us waiting for the Lord's return. Like, are we waiting like Simeon? That's an incredible devotion. That was the pinnacle of Simeon's life. There was nothing that meant more to him than seeing the Messiah. So those in the Old Testament waited, and they hoped for their Messiah. We've got some similarities here. As the church... We wait and we hope for his return. We wait with expectation for the return of Jesus. And we rejoice right now that new creation begun through Jesus and that its fulfillment is coming. And we carry the guarantee inside of ourselves. We walk around as the living temples housing the presence of God. (laughs) We walk around with that guarantee inside of us. It's going to be fulfilled. Peter talks about that in 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, 
He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We've been given new birth into a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus. That is our reality. That is our greatest hope, the satisfaction of our deepest need. Jesus, remember, is the first fruits of the resurrection. And we are going to be made like him when he comes again. We will be made like him. The faithfulness and the power of God itself will accomplish that. It seems so far off to us. But it's not. We're going to put our hope in the Lord for many, many things throughout our lives. But this, this living hope is the foundation that we have for every other hope. If God truly has power over death, and he showed us that he does in Jesus. If he truly has power over death, what does he not have power over? What can we not trust and hope in him for? There's nothing. When you describe someone as being trustworthy, you say that because they make good on the things they say. You can trust them because they hold to their word. They're faithful. And as I thought about this, and I was thinking of God's faithfulness to keep his promises, I pictured just this enormous glacier. I don't know what a glacier looks like exactly. You know, None of us have actually seen that. But in my mind, I just pictured this huge wall of ice and it's always advancing it slowly advances but most people can't see it but it's enormous and most of the people around us just don't know it's there and it's just continually advancing with a steady awesome power and nothing can withstand it and as it goes it reshapes everything that it touches just continually moving forward as people continue to work and rest and play and be married and given in marriage the whole time this incredibly powerful kingdom of God just continues to go forward when I first got saved this made me think of this too I really experienced being born into a living hope because it wasn't a logical thing that I learned it wasn't something that I captured with my mind It was something that became a reality to me. So when I first got saved, God became very real to me. And my eyes were opened to a whole new reality. Nothing looked the same to me. Nothing really looked different. But at the same time, everything was different. It's like you have a new dimension that's opened up to you. And I remember back then, I thought... The feeling I have inside of myself is like being the only one in a building that knows there's a bomb there that's about to go off. And I just, I just was like, I can't believe other people don't. It was so real to me. I'm like, how are you just like living your life here, dude? This is something's going to happen. And I was just escaping the flames at that point. So I had such an urgency to tell other people about the Lord because they knew that bomb was going to go off and it was going to be too late for a lot of people. And that was the way I felt then. And I still feel that way now. And I have a different spin on it now too 
because I know more about the Lord and I know more about my destiny in the Lord. So I still perceive that like a bomb about to go off. There is a present reality that most people don't see and it's just a matter of time before everyone sees it. Before it is made manifest in a big way. And in that moment, I greatly rejoice now for myself because I know the Lord is returning for me and he's going to take me to be with him. And that's a huge deal. But it's there just ticking away. It's just a matter of time. Tick, tick, tick before that season arrives and we're redeemed and we get to go and be with the Lord. And that is an incredible promise. And back when I got saved, I didn't know a lot of things about what the Bible said. I didn't know a lot of things about the promises of God. But I knew, I knew that I knew that I knew the truth was going to be made manifest beyond a shadow of a doubt in a moment that was very real to me because none of his words returned to him void and everyone will see it with their own eyes and it will just happen. And like as I prepared this, I was like, Lord, I feel like I've lost a little bit of that. (laughs) Help me get back to that. Just deep urgency of just in my bones knowing that I'm going to see you with my own eyes. And so are all of these other people that are around me. So let's look at Hebrews 6, which talks about this as well, starting in verse 17. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. God doesn't lie. He's always faithful. He can't lie, so we can be greatly encouraged by what he's told us is coming. And also, he sealed it with an oath, with his oath. And the purpose of an oath is to settle all disputes, doubts, and mistrust. I feel like we could do some teaching on Old Testament oaths to learn a little bit about how deep this is, and what it was meant to do, and how the people understood it. Oaths are the final word, and God has given us his So God can't lie. Who does lie? Who's the liar? We know that Satan's the liar. He's a father of lies. And he's going to try to get us to put our hope in temporal things. We saw this when he tempted Jesus. He tried to tempt Jesus into what, uh, into that when he showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, I'll give them to you if you'll just worship me. The temptation to be distracted by false hope is real. It's real for us, just as it was real for Israel. And it's not that we can't expect good things here in this life. It's just that ultimately, we can't keep our ultimate hope here on earth. It just doesn't work. We've got to keep it in heaven with the Lord and in the things that he said that's imperishable, that's stored up for us, that can't be touched by circumstances. That's where we keep our hope. This world... And the things that come with it are passing away. I heard Derek Prince one time describe it like this. 
You can have a peach that's ripe, but maybe you're just like not ready to eat it yet. And you don't want it to go bad. So you put it in the refrigerator. And the refrigerator can halt the corruption and the decay of that peach, but it can't stop it. If you leave it in there too long, it's going to rot anyway. And that's the way it is with things on this earth. Corruption has set in here. It is set in. And once corruption has set in, it can't be stopped. You may be able to halt it. You may be able to slow it down. But ultimately, this world is subject to decay. And there's so many awesome and wonderful things for us to do while we walk this earth, especially while we're in the Lord. But ultimately, the only way to avoid being hopeless is to put your hope in something incorruptible through Jesus. And, you know, the Lord does amazing things here on earth through us. And this life is so worth living. We've talked about that before in Ecclesiastes. It's not just that we throw it all away. It's so worth living. But at the same time, we have to keep our exit strategy in mind. The whole time, every day that we're living, you keep your exit strategy in mind. And that's to leave this world having run and finished the race well. And to take as many people with you as you can. It's just that simple. That's the strategy we keep in mind no matter what happens here on earth. So in closing, I want to look back at the hope for Messiah and a new covenant through him in Jeremiah 31. This is the way it's described there. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and inscribe it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will each man teach his neighbor or his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and will remember their sins no more. Ezekiel says something really similar in his prophecy. He says, he describes it this way, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. That's us. That's those who believe. We've become partakers of this new covenant. And God has given us his spirit. But there's more. There's still more to come. There's a fulfillment. Listen to the similarities between this, what was hoped for, what has come, and the hope that we look forward to. This is from Revelation 21. Listen to the similarities. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be there with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the former things have passed away. And the one seated on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. Then he said, Write this down, for those these words are faithful and true. And he told me, It is done. And the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, to the thirsty I will give freely from the spring of the water of life. The one who overcomes will inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. You see the similarity. That's what we wait for. That we get to be with God, we will be his people, and he will be our God in the fulfillment of all things. There is more to come. God was faithful to bring about and fulfill the things he spoke through the Old Testament prophets. 
And we can trust him and believe him that he is going to fulfill the things that he spoke about through the prophets here in Revelation. So we wait with hopeful expectation for that reality to come. Let's pray. Lord, help us to keep our hope fixed on you, our eyes fixed on you. When distractions come, especially during this season, Lord, help us to remember your first coming and your resurrection. And I pray that that would stir up in us faithfulness and hope as we look forward to the reality that is coming, the fulfillment of all things. I pray that you would just make that more and more real to each of us, that we would be rooted and built up in that, that we would live our lives based on it, Lord. And we thank you for winning that for us. We thank you for all that you're doing, all that you've done, your faithfulness and your mercy, Lord. Help us to wait with hopeful expectation like Simeon did. In Jesus' name, amen.